Our next speaker is Eric Dar, who's going to talk about investigational approaches to antiretroviral therapy. Eric is a professor of medicine at UCLA, um, and he's spoken to this audience many times in the past. And welcome back, Eric. Um, thanks, John. It's great to be here. Um, let's. So I don't know if I'm supposed to see something here. Should I just rotate this? Oh, there we go. Thank you. So what we're going to talk about for the next half hour or so are investigational approaches to antiretroviral therapy. Um, so these are my financial relationships and commercial entities. Uh, learning objectives will summarize treatments being investigated for HIV-infected persons with viremia. Uh, so this would be treatment-naive patients or people experiencing virologic failure and describe treatments being investigated for those with virologic suppression on antiretroviral therapy, or so-called maintenance therapy. So we'll start with investigational treatment strategies. And the nice thing is we've alluded to some of this already. Uh, so this will just provide a little bit of the backup data for some of the things we already talked about. There's been a lot of interest with dolutegravir and 3TC. In fact, it's gotten so much attention, I think that there's a general belief that we have a very robust data to support it. And, and we don't yet. Uh, it was actually a very novel concept when it was first considered because it was two drugs, and most of our regimens include three, usually two nukes and a thir third drug. So this was really a, a paradigm shift to consider something like this for first-line therapy. So the feeling was dolutegravir appeared to have a higher barrier to resistance, and I think everybody is familiar with the fact that in four large randomized control trials, the, uh, treatment-naive patients, there's yet to be an individual to experience any resistance, emergent resistance, including to the nucleosides. So they thought they would take advantage of this property of the drug that's a small pill, well-tolerated, highly efficacious in other combinations, and mix it with 3TC, but the approach was very cautious because this was really breaking new ground, and we didn't want to take the chance of people breaking through with both nuke and integrase resistance. So they started the study in the first cohort, and they identified a population of really low-risk people. So there were people with viral loads of less than 100,000, CD4s are greater than 200, and the plan was to give them dolutegravir and 3TC in a single-arm study to the first 10 and see how it went, and if it went okay, then expand the cohort to a total of 20 with close follow-up. And this is the way they reported the data. Only a study of 20 can report data like this, where they showed over time baseline, day four, seven, week two, three, four, and so on, and they looked at the viral loads, and it's color-coded, and that yellow, I guess this is yellow or lime green, uh, is less than 50, and you can see that most people got to less than 50 within the first, literally the first month of therapy. So it was a very potent regimen, and this was sustained across the board, with two exceptions. There was one person who committed suicide that was not thought to be drug-related, and another person who experienced a little bit of viremia after having been less than 50 for quite a while. I actually thought I had the slide, I don't, but the person actually had a viral load of something like 50 and then 90, and that was confirmed viral, I'm sorry, like 70 and then 90, that was confirmed viral failure for the purposes of the study, and then continued on the same regimen and resuppressed to less than 50. 
So there was a suicide, and then there was somebody who had this transient elevation and viremia that resuppressed without changing therapy. So it looks like a pretty promising option for first-line therapy in this select population. The ACTG recently completed a study of a little over 100 people that was committed to enroll over 25% of the people with viral loads of over 100,000, right? Because that's the next question before you sort of embark on a large phase three trial, is what if you stress this by having a little bit harder to treat population? That study is fully enrolled, and hopefully we'll be seeing that data pretty soon. Uh, and then the company went ahead and proceeded with a large phase three trial that's fully enrolled and in follow-up. And ultimately, they started out limiting to people with viral loads of 100,000, but with some additional data, they now allowed it to go up to 500,000. So I think that will be the data set for treatment-naive patients with this regimen, uh, and it'll be for people with viral loads of up to 500,000, and we'll overall see safety and efficacy. And obviously, the beauty of this regimen is it's two drugs. Uh, it's they happen to be made by the same company, so it can be combined into a single tablet regimen with a relatively low total mass. And for those patients where we are worried about tenofovir in any form or abacavir, uh, this would be a tenofovir and abacavir sparing regimen. So a lot of excitement about it and a lot of data coming, but right now the actual data for treatment-naive patients is limited to a relatively small number of in very select individuals. So then there was some more data that was recently presented at CROI looking at dolutegravir-3-TC for maintenance. One would assume that if it works for first-line therapy, it'll likely work for maintenance. Again, a relatively small data set where they monitored people on dolutegravir with two nukes, and if they were still suppressed after eight weeks, switched them to dolutegravir and 3-TC with follow-up in the so-called phase two portion. The inclusion criteria required, again, a Nader CD4 of over 200 and no history of viral failure and suppressed for a prolonged period of time. So again, a select population of patients, sort of enriched for people that we think are the most likely to be successful with a novel combination, and a relatively small number of patients, just over 100. So we had 20 for first-line therapy, lots more coming, and here we have 100 for maintenance. And this shows that week eight, which was when they all switched to dolutegravir and 3TC, and then looks at the proportion undetectable moving forward, and 101 out of 104 met therapeutic success um, with one case of viral failure throughout the group. So in general, for maintenance, in a relatively small number of select patients, it also appears to be a promising option. Okay, well, if dolutegravir in two nukes works and dolutegravir in 3TC works, what about dolutegravir alone? Right now, we're talking about the potential to have a, a nuke, non-nuke PI and sparing regimen with a pill, 50 milligram, very small pill that's generally well tolerated. And again, if the barrier to resistance is high, kind of like what we'd become accustomed to with boosted PIs, maybe one could get away with something like this for maintenance therapy. So again, a very small study of 104 people on stable suppressive therapy, and then a group of them switched to dolutegravir monotherapy. And this is the data at 24 weeks. Um, most people maintain suppression. This is the group that received dolutegravir monotherapy. And then with extended follow-up, they did indeed identify some people experienced viral failure. A total of eight of the people that had gotten to 48 weeks, uh, and six of the eight had genotype data, three of those six had integrase resistance. So this study was stopped, 
And the conclusion from the investigators was that dolutegravir monotherapy maintenance should not be pursued. Again, not because it was a disaster, not because it didn't work in anybody, but clearly the failure rate in a suppressed population was unacceptably high. And even worse than that, when they failed, they failed with resistance, which had not previously be, been seen in dolutegravir patients, start, naive patients starting dolutegravir for the first time. So again, the data is limited, more is coming, but I think we have to be careful and we can't assume too much with dolutegravir, and particularly if we're using it alone or when there's a background of a lot of resistance. Now, when we start talking about novel combinations uh, using existing drugs like dolutegravir 3TC, the other one that's gotten some attention is dolutegravir and rilpivirine. So we're going to talk a little bit about the LATTE study. You may remember this was the study to sort of develop some data for ultimately the long-acting regimen of a long-acting integrase and rilpivirine long-acting. From that, we learned that you can indeed maintain viral suppression with an integrase inhibitor in rilpivirine. So this was a fully powered, two fully powered phase three trials of maintenance therapy with two drugs that are currently available, but obviously had been previously studied uh, with two nukes. In this case, dolutegravir rilpivirine. So there were, in the two studies, so-called SWORD1 and SWORD2, there were over 1,000 patients enrolled and randomly assigned stably suppressed patients, important, no underlying resistance to the drugs, also extremely important. Uh, no history of virologic failure, who were then assigned to continue their therapy or switch to the novel combination. Now, the advantage of the novel combination is probably obvious to everybody in that the total mass of these two pills together is 75 milligrams. And with cooperation between the companies, will likely become available as a single tablet regimen with a mass of 75 milligrams. So, you know, we're starting to talk not just simpler and well-tolerated, but also shrinking size of the pills. It's also, we talked a little bit about not using boosted PIs if we can get away with it, not using abacavir or tenofovir perhaps in select patients. It doesn't include any of those things. So this was the study design, and this is clearly the largest and mo most robust safety and efficacy data set that we have for a combination like this with 1,000 patients. So here are the baseline characteristics. Again, nothing shocking here. These are people stably suppressed on therapy. About half of them were on a non-nuke-based regimen. And about two-thirds, three-quarters, ended up on tenofovir. They got to choose between, um, when they started, they came in. I'm sorry, I didn't choose. When they started, they came in on a tenofovir-based regimen before they switched. And here's the data. 95% maintained viral suppression at 48 weeks. This clearly met criteria for non-inferiority. And virologic failure was extremely rare in both of the study groups. So again, very, very large, don't forget that, of these novel regimens, not 100 or 20, but 1,000 patients that we have now safety and efficacy data with this combination. Uh, here is the virologic success rate is outlined here. If you look at the people who had um, virologic non-response, again, the numbers were very, very small. Uh, and confirmed virologic um, withdrawal and two per arm, one dolutegravir plus rolopivirine did select for some uh, non-nuke resistance, and there was no integrase resistance in the entire cohort of patients. So this, I think, when we think about game changers with drugs that are currently available, this is the one 
and which I think we could seriously consider using it. And some of those cases that were described, you may want to use it in a bigger way because the pills are so small and generally well tolerated. But certainly when you start thinking about regimens where you need something that doesn't include boosted PIs, doesn't include uh, TAF or abacavir, uh, people who have underlying resistance perhaps, but don't have resistance to these classes of drugs, all would be viable options. So now let's talk a little bit about investigational drugs. Here is sort of a, a, a big can of worms when you start talking about it. Where do you start and where do you end? There's a lot of things to potentially talk about, drugs in different stages of development. I really tried to focus my attention on the ones that were the furthest along. So for example, there's a few just so people don't feel slighted. Um, I didn't talk about any of the broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies that are being looked at in a therapeutic realm as well as in a prevention realm, so I'm not going to talk about those. Um, I'm not going to talk about any of the maturation type inhibitors because they're at different stages of development, but there are new drugs that are being developed that have potentially very long half-lives. And I'm not going to talk about a new nuke that's gotten a lot of attention, this EFDA that's been shown to have a relatively long half-life, and there's a parenteral version where you maintain therapeutic levels for in excess of six months. But again, very early stages of development. Um, this is a drug that will be approved soon, and that's a new formulation of an old drug, raltegravir. Um, we know that currently raltegravir is available as a 400 milligram pill that has to be given twice a day. There was an attempt to see if this could be done, the so-called QD Merck, to see if this could be done as a once a day regimen, 800 milligrams once a day. But that study was stopped because of a higher rate of virologic failure, particularly amongst the people with high viral loads. So this is a new formulation of 600 milligrams where people would take it as 1,200 a day. So two 600s with a nucleoside backbone, in this case, a tenofovir FTC, versus the standard raltegravir. Uh, the baseline characteristics, they had about 30% had viral loads of over 100,000. It was important to do that because of the experience in the QD Merck study to make sure that even in the people with high viral loads that this was going to work. And they did an interim analysis early on, again, to err on the side of caution based on the previous experience. And here's the data, and you can see the two curves are absolutely superimposable with high rates of virologic suppression and clearly met the criteria for non-inferiority. So this drug is likely to be approved in the near future and available as an option. But again, it's not going to be a fixed-dose combination. It's not going to be a single tablet regimen. It's going to be two 600-milligram pills once a day along with the nuke backbone. From an adverse event perspective, you worry about this as you start to give more drug at the same time where you might get higher peaks, these really, the, there doesn't look to be any real difference from a tolerability perspective. And then other new drugs that are in development, maybe not as close, but not too far behind, is a new integrase. So this is Bictegravir. So Bictegravir is an integrase inhibitor that supposedly um, is expected to be highly efficacious uh, and hopefully well tolerated, and it comes in a small dose uh, and doesn't require boosting. So it starts to sound a lot like dolutegravir. Uh, and this was a phase 2B study that was presented at CROI and then published at the same time in Lancet HIV, where they took a small number of 100 people and randomized them two to one to the new drug, Bictegravir FTC-TAF, versus dolutegravir FTC-TAF. The baseline characteristics, about 20% had viral loads of over 100,000. 
And the virologic suppression rate at 24 weeks and 48 weeks was about as high as we've ever seen in any other regimen, admittedly 100 patients. So from a phase 2B study, it tells us that this is likely to be highly efficacious, uh, and it really sets the stage for phase 3 studies that are underway. In fact, there are four large randomized control trials that are underway, two for treatment-naive patients and two for maintenance therapy in people who are already suppressed. These studies are fully enrolled and are in follow-up, and my guess is that we're going to see the data pretty soon, and then the approval, if everything goes right, won't be far behind it. The advantages here, the big advantage, uh, along with anything else that might be encountered from a safety perspective, the big advantage is going to be this will be co-formulated with TAF-FTC, where dolutegravir obviously is not. So if that's an important issue for people, this will provide a new single tablet regimen, a relatively small pill, because the mass is small for both TAF and bictegravir. Uh, the, the key is, does the efficacy hold up in the large phase three trials? Does the safety hold up in head-to-head -head comparisons with first-line therapy? And then I think the other real intangible is, will the resistance profile look like dolutegravir or will it look like the other integrase inhibitors? Meaning if it's like dolutegravir where nobody selects for any resistance in the phase three trials, then it really provides a whole new option for people. From a safety perspective, again, this is the comparison of bictegravir, dolutegravir. Not a lot that really jumps out at you, again, recognizing that the numbers are very small. So any differences that you see, I don't think you can tie much to in these kind of small numbers. And then another drug, so that drug is looking to be on the near horizon. Raltegravir once a day, very, very close. That drug is probably not too far behind. Uh, Duraverine is probably the next closest um, in that this is the phase three data that was presented at CROI with a new non-nuke. So we have a bunch of non-nukes. All of them have limitations. We talked about efavirenz and CNS toxicity. Ropivirine looks like a great drug, except in people with high viral loads and low T cells. So this is a new non-nuke, um, and it was compared in a head-to-head -head trial with darunavir-ritonavir for first-line therapy. This is the phase three trial. You can see the characteristics here. Pretty typical treatment-naive trial. Uh, the baseline viral loads, about 20% had viral loads of over 100,000. This is always the challenge as we treat people earlier in clinical practice. That tends to be who gets enrolled in these clinical trials. And about 80 to 90% of the people ended up on TDF-FTC, and the others on a back of our 3TC. It was left to the investigator's discretion. So here's the data, the proportion of people less than 50, 80 and 84%. It met criteria for non-inferiority. The virologic non-response rate was very similar between the two groups. I think overall, it met the primary endpoint, and it was considered a very successful study. Some people look at this and say, gee, you just showed us a bunch of studies with 90, 95%. What's wrong with this? Um, you know, I think nobody knows for sure. The best guess is it probably was the complexity of the regimen and an increased frequency of people simply choosing to leave the study because they were taking four pills a day in an era where more and more people want to be on one or at the most two. So I think some of it may be related to that. Uh, it wasn't otherwise obvious what might have been driving these response rates into the mid to low 80s versus the low 90s that we were more frequently accustomed to seeing. Uh, this is the breakdown looking at the different subgroups. We want to make sure that it looks as good at, low viral at high viral loads as it does low viral loads. And you can see, again, it looks very similar. Even in a subset of people who had viral loads of over 500,000, the response rates looked very good. 
and low CD4 counts and regardless of nucleoside backbone. So again, this will be at the FDA based on the, the, the registrational trial. I think it's likely to get approved. It will be a new non-nuke option. So the first question you ask is, okay, well, it looks pretty well tolerated. It's one pill a day, um, all favorable characteristics. Uh, what's it gonna be combined with? Because in the current era, just a good drug isn't enough. It's all what they're combined with. And you know that is the challenge here. And what I've heard was that they're planning to move forward with, with looking at something related to cost and combining it with fixed dose with tenofovir, TDF, disoproxyl fumarate, and lamivudine, 3TC. So it'll be a novel combination. Two of those three drugs will soon be generic uh, with the new NNRTI. And the question is how that will impact clinical practice. Uh, and you know, only time will tell. From a virologic failure perspective, virologic failure was rare and resistance was not identified in any of the people with protocol-defined virologic failure. We would expect that with darunavir or wouldn't usually expect it with an NNRTI, raises the question, is that because there's something unique about this NNRTI? Um, or was it just a chance event in a setting where virologic failure was relatively rare? They only had genotypic data on seven and eight people in the two different arms. Um, perhaps a cautionary note was there was one person who discontinued for noncompliance at week 24. So they did not meet criteria for protocol-defined virologic failure. But with noncompliance, they did select for non-nuke and 3TC or FTC resistance. They also looked very carefully for tolerability issues and things like CNS toxicity and rash and they didn't stand out. And you can see here on the adverse event profile that in general, the two drugs were pretty similar, a little bit more um, gastrointestinal side effects with uh, diarrhea in the darunavir group versus the duravirine. Then the LATTE studies. So the LATTE one, for those of you who remember that trial, was a small study of maintenance therapy with short acting, uh, um, cabotegravir, the new integrase inhibitor, and short-acting rupivirine. And that was to set the stage for the long-acting regimen, uh, but they wanted to first see if you could maintain suppression with that novel combination of an integrase and a non-nuke. Now we have the SWORD study, and we know you can, but it was really based on the LATTE-1 study, and it did maintain suppression. So LATTE-2 was then to test in a phase 2b study the long-acting formulations. So they took people and they got them suppressed with two nukes and the new integrase inhibitor, cabotegravir. And then in the last month, after 20 weeks, they added short-acting rilpiferine. So the, the important thing is in these long-acting studies is that you need to demonstrate that the people tolerate the drugs using a short-acting formulation. Because if somebody develops a side effect to the, one of these drugs after you've given it to them as an intramuscular nanoformulation, it's going to be around for months. So everybody in the studies, and this is going to apply in clinical practice, is going to need to be exposed to the short-acting formulation before switch to maintenance therapy with long-acting. So that's what they did, and the people who were suppressed after 24 weeks um, and tolerated the regimen, which was the overwhelming majority, got randomly assigned to either continue the cabotegravir with two nukes or long-acting either once a month or once every two months cabotegravir and ropivirine at two different doses. And then they followed them. Uh, this was the baseline characteristics. Again, this is a virologically suppressed population. 
um, at, at the time of the switch to their regular regimen. This is the baseline, uh, about 15, 20% had viral loads of over 100,000, but again, we're all suppressed before they went on the new regimen. And here's the data showing very similar virologic suppression out to a year uh, with all of the regiments. So it looks like the long-acting formulation works, and if you just glance at this quickly, it looks like every eight weeks is about the same as every four weeks. But there are probably some subtleties. Uh, this is the data looking at it in a more traditional way, um, where you see virologic outcomes, 90 to 92%. Not really anything obvious going on here, but if you look at virologic non-response, there were more non-responders in the every eight-week data. And again, the PK may also have been a little bit less favorable. And I think because the company wanted to be conservative in making a decision about moving forward with the phase three trial, which certainly this data justified, they ended up moving forward with the Q4 week data. And that study has just recently enrolled. It's enrolled extremely quickly. They closed enrollment in the United States because they wanted to make sure they enrolled some people internationally. But probably in the next few months, the study will be fully accrued. Uh, and we'll be waiting for the phase three data. So this would be a novel combination, which again, could be going to the FDA for maintenance therapy uh, in suppressed patients in the not too distant future and would really represent a major shift in treatment. Here's the, the breakdown for virologic success. And you, again, you can get a hint. That there may be a little bit something different going on in the Q8 weeks versus the Q4. One of the big questions about this regimen was, you know, I think a lot of people might be interested in it, but the idea of coming in and getting two relatively large intramuscular gluteus medius injections um, every four weeks, even every eight, but certainly every four weeks, may not seem too appealing. And I have to admit, I thought very few people would want to do this. Um, so one of the things they did in this study was not just look at safety and efficacy in the standard way, but acceptability. And the way they addressed acceptability was they asked people two questions. And they asked everyone in the study. So it included the people on oral regimen in every four and every eight weeks. And they asked them first, how satisfied are you with your current treatment? And they have a color code where six is very satisfied, five just below that. And you can see in the Q8 weeks and the Q4 week regimen, if you count the fives and sixes, it's virtually everybody would appear to be very satisfied or, or close to very satisfied in these regimens. In fact, the satisfaction score wasn't quite as good in the people who were on an all oral regimen. And then they asked the same question as, how satisfied would you be to continue with your presence? So not just, okay, you got through 48 weeks, congratulations, what'd you think? But are you ready to continue? And again, the overwhelming majority on the injectable, even every four weeks, said that they would be very satisfied to continue to move forward. So this is great news, and it's very reassuring how acceptable it is. I think an important caveat is that everybody came into this study wanting to get long-acting intramuscular therapy. So you know, it is a unique group, and my guess is that explains why the people who ended up on the oral regimen were kind of pissed off. Right? <laughs> Because, I mean, I can't imagine it was because of tolerability issues. But it is, at least for the people who want to be on it, they seem to have found it to be extremely acceptable. Uh, as far as new drugs and novel, and novel sort of novel mechanisms of action, we have a couple that I'll talk about. One is ibilizumab. Uh, this is a humanized monoclonal antibody to CD4 receptor that blocks HIV infection. 
So it's given as an intravenous, but it may even be able to be given sub-Q um, every two weeks. And it's a novel mechanism of action, so although it may be a strategy for longer-acting therapies, it also represents an option for those people who have selected for a lot of resistant virus and need new options, either because of resistance or perhaps because of tolerability issues. So this was a phase three trial in highly treatment-experienced patients. And as you can imagine, it's really difficult to study these patients in the current era. There just aren't that many of them anymore. So this was a FDA-approved registrational trial for ibilizumab, and it included 40 people. They were highly treatment experienced with multidrug-resistant virus. And the primary endpoint for the study was viral suppression one week after given a dose of this monoclonal antibody. So they stayed on their stable regimen during this control period. Then they received ibilizumab, IV, and then they looked at viral suppression a week later, and then after that, they got optimized regimen. And if you spend a lot of time thinking about how you would design these trials, you realize there's not a lot of other really good ways to do this in the current era. So these are the baseline characteristics. These were patients with lots of resistance, a mean viral load of 100,000, and CD4 of 150. Now, they were able to get optimized background from any way they could find it, including about half were able to get sort of expanded access severe, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is another new drug in a new class, an attachment inhibitor. So they were looking towards other new unapproved drugs to try to create an optimized regimen. And here's what the data showed. If you looked at the proportion of people who had greater than one log reduction after a week, so it's day 14, but that's one week after the dose, it was 83%. And if you look at greater than a log, it was 60%. And then when you get to week 24 with optimized background regimen, about 50% of these highly resistant patients managed to get to virologic suppression at 24 weeks. So again, it looks very promising for these really difficult to treat patients. And then the other new drug in a new class, Fostemsevir, an attachment inhibitor prodrug, is given either once or twice a day. Again, this is very early data. It binds GP120 to prevent attachment and entry into CD4 cells. So this was a phase 2B study. The primary endpoint was RNA of less than 50 at week 24. And it was a combination of different doses of Vostemsevir with raltegravir and tenofovir, diceproxyl fumarate, compared to atazanavir, ritonavir, raltegravir, and TDF. And here are the results of that study. Again, a small phase 2B study, no difference in virologic efficacy, regardless of subgroups. It was generally well tolerated, um, with somewhat higher rates of grade 2 to 4 adverse events in the atazanavir, ritonavir group, a lot of hyperbilirubinemia. And the phase 3 trial in heavy treatment experience patients is ongoing. So again, this drug is moving along. There's every reason to believe that it's likely to be safe and efficacious and represent at least an option for these difficult-to-treat patients. And with that, I will stop. Thank you for your attention and be happy to answer any questions. HIV RNA is greater than 100,000? Yeah, so great question. So the question was dolutegravir and ropivirine in people with high viral loads. The problem is, and this is extremely important, the only real good data we have with that combination is, it, even though it was the most robust 
safety and efficacy data sets in maintenance therapy. So we don't have that as a first-line regimen. So I think we'd have to be really cautious to extrapolate from the maintenance data to considering using it first-line. We just don't know. How long, to stay with maintenance, how long should a patient be suppressed before you switch to a maintenance regimen? Boy, that is a great question. Most of the studies tended to be pretty conservative and have people suppressed for quite a prolonged period of time. I would, you know, I, I think I'm making this up, although there may be some data. I'm sure there's no randomized data. I would think if the person is virologically suppressed for at least six months and there's no underlying resistance, that that should be more than enough. Yeah, I would yeah. think so. Would plastenavir um, synergize with uh, Mirabarak? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a good question. So an attachment inhibitor with a, a Miravirac. Um, I don't know if we have that data. I don't know if anyone has looked at it. People used to do all those synergy studies in vitro. I haven't seen any of those done in a long time. Uh, there's no reason to believe that the two wouldn't work together as long as, obviously, the patient has, no, no, uh, has only R5 virus, so they're a Miravirac yeah. candidate. Um, I'm not sure I, you, you'd want to use it in those combinations alone, but if you're looking for a combination for a patient with a lot of resistance, there's no reason it shouldn't yeah. work. The other, the other drug I, I didn't talk about was Pro-140, speaking of CCR5 antagonists. That is another injectable, long-acting regimen that's being looked at for people, again, who are R5 only. Can Zentri be boosted to once a day? So yeah, so that's Miravirac. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there was some problems with Miravirac once a day in the early trials. So it's generally been approved twice a day. I have not used it in so long. <laughs> I, I, I don't, uh, yeah, I'm not sure to tell you the truth. I mean, it is boosted if they're on boosting agents, but I thought that gets you from 300 twice a day to 150 twice a day. But I'd have to look it up because I don't, I don't know if there's others in the room who've used it more recently than I. But I think it's still recommended as twice a day. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. Questions from the audience? Use the microphone. Great. Thank you. All right, Eric, thank you very much.